All right. I'm there good. we go. Uh, look, yeah. Look at that. Look at that. We finished together. How, how sweet. I was, <laughs> I was getting a, I was getting a, a placeholder for Matt because I couldn't find the one I was using for the longest. So we'll use that one. Look at it. Look how, look how fucking scrawny he looks. Jesus Christ. That ain't even a recent photo. It's an old photo. I say he looks. I was gonna say this is before he really started lifting because he's got way more muscle now. He's he's All muscular right. as shit too. <laughs> All right, uh, let's do the damn thing. Let's do it. As business owners, entrepreneurs, family men, it's difficult for us to find the time to put together projects like these. Even though it's something we really want to do, unfortunately, taking care of the things we have to take care of comes first. However, because of viewer support for people like you, we're able to continue doing this. Please consider joining our Patreon and supporting the Burn and Return podcast. Listening to Burn and Return, a weekly one-hour podcast covering news from the agricultural and turfgrass industries. That's right, it's time for Burn and Return, ladies and gentlemen. That's right, ladies, gentlemen, boys, girls, and even if you identify as the erectoplasm on top of the plate of chicken and waffles, this is the show for you. Now. Tonight, I am joined by my good friend, Ray. Matt is on assignment tonight. He may join us. He may not. And you know what? That doesn't matter because Ray and I are here to have a comfy, cozy conversation. No fireplace, no bearskin rug. But, Ray, it can still be sexy now, can it? Hell yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> can make it sexy uh, even without that. <laughs> See, that's the kind of guy that Ray is. He, he needs none of the props, right? He's just a real man's man. And someday, someday when we trick him and bring him over here for uh, maybe even next year's uh, trip to the mainland, Ray, maybe we won't let you go back. Maybe we will light your ticket on fire so that you can't return and we'll have somebody sell all your possessions there in in Hawaii, liquidate those, and you'll move to the mainland once and for all. What do you say? I wouldn't be mad if that happened. See? <laughs> there you go, boys and girls. If you're if you're a part of the show, if you if you're coming to Louisville, it might be a mainland intervention for Ray. But until then, there's a lot to go through, and we're going to start tonight with the headlines. Well, Ray, things are heating up already, and we haven't even put some crops in the ground yet. U.S. gives farmers a shorter window to spray crop with the chemical dicamba. The United States EPA Uh. said on Thursday it has slightly shortened the window for farmers in major soybean-producing states to use the weed killer criticized for drifting away from where it sprayed. The restrictions made it harder for farmers to use dicamba sold by agrochemical companies like Bayer AG, Syngenta, after some growers have already bought seeds and crop chemicals for spring planting. The deadlines for farmers to spray dicamba in Iowa, Illinois, and Indiana will be June 12th instead of June 20th of last year. 
The EPA approved the June 20th deadline for South Dakota instead of the June 30 date of last year. The changes are intended to reduce the risk, the EPA said. Some scientists consider an earlier deadline to be safer because the high temperatures can increase the risk for dicamba to drift from where it is sprayed. Farmers and scientists for years have reported problems with dicamba drifting and causing damage to nearby plants not genetically modified to resist the herbicide. Quote, unquote, we need an outright ban on dicamba use genetically, uh, on genetically engineered crops because it's an ongoing damage to other crops across millions of acres in the United States, said Nathan Donnelly, Environmental Health Science Director for the Center of Biological Diversity and Environmental Group. Okay. The EPA in, EP, in 2001, or December 2001 said it was assessing whether dicamba could be sprayed safely on soybean and cotton plants engineered to resist it without the procedure posing, quote-unquote, unreasonable risk to other crops. On Thursday, the agency said it is still evaluating all of its options for addressing future dicamba-related incidents, end quote. Nebraska said it objected to a June 12th deadline discussed with, EPA, with the EPA and will keep its deadline of June 30. At this late of a date, Nebraska producers have already made their 2023 planting decisions have likely purchased seed and pesticide products to implement their plans, said Sherry Vitton, director of the Nebraska Department of Agriculture. So, Ray, for those at home that don't know what this is all about, can you quickly, in a minute or so, explain what dicamba is, the crops that it's used on, the crops that it's hurting, and how that's happening, the mechanism through which that's taking place. Okay, very simply, dicamba is what's called an oxen agonist herbicide, right? And so, in other words, it acts like a growth regulator on plants, except it acts by enhancing cell division and cell growth to the point where the plant essentially grows itself to death and dies. Now, dicamba is normally used on corn, grain crops, and even on turf grass and lawn areas because it's a very effective broadleaf herbicide. However, in recent years, the agribusiness companies have come up with crops that normally do not tolerate dicamba, such as cotton and soybeans. And this is kind of a big deal because, you see, dicamba is a herbicide that is effective on broadleaf weeds that may be resistant to glyphosate. Uh-huh. However, however, here is the issue. Mm-hmm. In times past, when we didn't have these wonder crops that were engineered or designed to resist dicamba, previously, dicamba was only used during pre-plant or very early season weed control or else... It was used in the fall to destroy persisting perennial weeds. It was not used in season or mid-season when other susceptible crops were, you know, in their in their growth phases because the other crops that dicamba will damage and to date have not been engineered to resist dicamba include fruit trees, grapes, 
and vegetables. Uh-huh. Because, you know, you know, Ryan, I always get asked by my clientele, hey, uh, that herbicide that I'm using, it only kills the weeds, right? And my answer to them is, uh, no, this herbicide also has the potential to take out your flowers, take out your shrubs, and take out all the flowers and shrubs in the neighborhood if not used appropriately. Mm. You know, so I, real, I need to come quick. Of... Oh, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. So that issue of drift that you know was brought up in the in the article. It is not just a matter of product volatility. It is also an issue of, Brian, let me paint the picture for you. Imagine a spray boom traveling over a field of soybeans or cotton, and that boom is several feet above the ground to clear the growing crop. And your your spray volume is between 10 and 15 gallons per acre. And because time is money, that spray rig is running at close to 10 miles per hour or faster. Mm. What do you think about that, knowing that you spray large turf areas? <laughs> <laughs> Not a good idea. And I think that's the most important thing here is that there's two issues here that I think are important to understand. Number one is that like you said, the use case for dicamba has completely changed in the last 10 to 15 years. And why, mm-hmm. right? Because we now have weeds that are resistant to glyphosate. Now, uh, it's a number of different ways to solve it. This is the easiest path so far. I don't know mm-hmm. enough about what's coming down the pike in terms of uh, you know, new AIs, right, that could potentially solve this. New chemistry um, that can... Right. right. That, but that's also going to require changing. I mean, there, there's there's a lot there. Right. So Bayer's got uh, several billion dollars backing efforts to replace and remove glyphosate from the market. But you better gosh darn well believe that what's coming behind it is going to be a new type of resistant crop. Right. A renewed resistant gene and a whole new class of herbicides built around it. So uh, get ready to pony up and pay. And I think that's going to be probably the next great hurdle to clear uh, before too long. So we'll see what happens there. But real quick, uh, just for the folks that are scoring at home, the lawn care operators, the homeowners, everything like that, again, in a, in a short minute here, you know, minute, 30 seconds, what is the, uh, what are the best practices that folks can take to limit the amount of, number one, drift, but more so volatilization that may occur on dicamba and other actives just like it? I would probably say that number one is pay attention to your application conditions. Uh, There is no good reason for somebody to be waving around a sprayer in 15 mile per hour winds or greater. And if you've been watching the YouTubes, you have seen some people spraying lawns with backpack sprayers under circumstances by which I find <laughs> a little bit questionable to say the least, right, Ryan? And well, secondly, uh, yeah, yeah, go ahead. The the other, you know, to finish this up, you also pay attention to 
what are your weather conditions and your temperatures at the time of your application? Because, for example, I have a little rule where I really rethink herbicide applications, believe it or not, when it starts to get warm, still, and humid, Ryan. I start to rethink mm. Mm-hmm. what I'm applying or if I'm even going to apply. And the, and the reason why I do that is because I'm all too aware of what happens when a herbicide like dicamba or 2,4-D or triclopyr becomes volatile. Mm. And when those herbicides become volatile, here's the problem. It is no longer a matter of a spray particle you know floating on the wind we are talking about that herbicide changing phases and becoming a gas or a vapor <laughs> well and i think that's something that's really really important too and uh, the last thing i'll ask there too is this is what you know what are commonly used herbicides especially in the lawn care side of things that folks should be wary of most especially, right? That are going to, not necessarily in drift conditions or drift conditions, I I get that, but from a volatilization standpoint, what are ones that they should be really keen on? And I want to drive this point home just because I don't ever want lawn care to get into the same uh, level of scrutiny. The same shit show, yeah. Because we use the same things, and boy, howdy, like Mm -hmm. it's going to be an issue here because people are going to see this in the news, and then when Mrs. Smith mm-hmm. rosebushes die, well, guess who's going to get the blame, right? So real mm-hmm. quickly, actives that folks should be uh, wary of in, in those humid conditions like you were just talking about. Yeah, these humid, still hot conditions, uh, dicamba, one, two, triclopyr ester, three, 2,4-D ester. I mean, those are the big three that people should be paying attention to and the other point is is that in a lot of cases your ideal times to even be treating for weeds ryan Mm -hmm. are either fairly early in spring soon after green up or i am in personally in favor of putting the hammer down in fall and early winter before the weeds go truly dormant because do you know what happens when you spray weeds about to go dormant ryan oh, uh, it depends on the weed but go you, you what do you think okay what usually happens if it's some kind of a biennial or perennial broadleaf weed is that mm-hmm. that weed then gets treated it stores that herbicide that you applied in the fall and it fails to grow back in the spring. Got him. <laughs> Got him. All right. Got him. Right. Yeah. Good stuff. Now, yeah. let's so in go other words, over. Oh, go, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. And so my point is on this is I am unimpressed with people spraying weeds in the midsummer when it's hot. Please don't do that because you are just hmm. taking all kinds of chances <laughs> well let's jump over to france ray and let's quickly talk about what's going on over there with the herbicide that's causing a little bit of a stink in that uh area of the world as well 
So, a major yeah. herbicide used in French farming is set to be banned by health authorities after it was found to have links to pollution of the groundwater table. <sighs> Completely banning a herbicide is a rare occurrence in France. The herbicide metolachlor will be withdrawn mm. for most of its major uses in France, confi- confirmed the Health, Food, and Environment Agency. Uh, I'm not even going to try and pronounce it, but uh, yep, uh, on February 15th. It said that experts mm-hmm. have shown that the three products connected with this herbicide have been found in underground water, the deep water in the earth that refills the water table in levels higher than set by the European legislation. So they said that they found contamination, but there was no risk posed to tap water. So, Ray, real quick on this, just, you know, uh, again, a quick summary of where is this used, right? Is, and is this a widely used chemical in the United States? And what do you think about them taking this off the market all the way around? You know what? Uh, Esmetolachlor. You know, Ryan, funny they should mention this because I know it as a product that is not available to me in Hawaii called Pennant Magnum. Uh huh. And, okay. And wait, I'm not done. There's the ag branded product called Dual Magnum. And Dual Magnum is used as a pre-emergent in corn and soybeans and various other field crops. So the here's what I think about it being taken off the market completely. Mm-hmm. I am unsurprised. I am not surprised because... Metolachlor is a herbicide that is honestly and genuinely extremely mobile in the soil and groundwater. It, uh, its KOC is such that it does not bind very well mm. to soil or organic matter. It moves, uh-huh. Ryan. And, you know... Yeah. Ryan, its mobility, for example, is why it can work on a weed like yellow nutsedge. Time's up. It's over. Because that metolachlor is capable of relocating itself in the soil profile such that it will affect germination of uh, the yellow nutsedge tubers. Uh Uh-huh. But then it doesn't stop there. Apparently, it... Uh, has the capability of moving down to groundwater as well. So I want everybody to pay attention to this because this is apparently a very popular herbicide for usage in Florida and in the Deep South because, for example, St. Augustine grass is tolerant. You may use this on St. Augustine for yellow nutsedge prevention. But at what cost? I think that's it's a valid point, and I know that Pennant Magnum has been featured uh, on some YouTube channels. I hear as of late, and I I think that's one thing that folks really need to be careful with uh, for a variety of reasons. Mm-hmm. Not so much that uh, it's dangerous in uh, in use, right? But more so of the perception and the nature of the active that's in it. And, you know, just as an aside here, I would say that, um, you know, really the, uh, the Trojan Magnum, right, that, uh, that Telly Coleman uses, that's the one you really got to be careful of because uh, 
that man has a massive gravy boat in his trousers. Let's just be honest about it. All right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, last story here coming to us from Norfolk Daily News. This is out there in beautiful Virginia. And let me tell you what here, uh, Ray, this is an extension agent, Kelly Feehan. She's talking about, do we really need five-step lawn care programs? So I thought it would be kind of interesting to just jump through this real quick. A recent question was asked about the five-step programs for fertilization and pest management in lawns. The person asking was wondering if all applications were necessary every year. The answer to this question depends on such factors as turf grass type, age of the lawn, soil conditions, pest history, expectations for the lawn, and the level of maintenance a person is willing to do. On the number of fertilizations, a soil test provides the best answer, but at least once a year is needed. This would be considered a low-maintenance lawn, and grass color and turf density would be effective. The turf is thin, weeds are more likely to invade. On lawns where performance expectations are high, the recommended recommendation of extension uh, turf grass specialist is three to four fertilizations a year on lawns that are 10 years old or younger. The best timing in our area would be April to May, late June, late July, into September, and mid to late October. Getting these dates are easiest for do-it-yourselfers. For lawns 10 years or older, two applications are sufficient, with one in May and one in early September, with the latter being most important. All right, so it uh, goes on here to say that, uh, oh, here, here we go. Uh, where's the one that I wanted to see here? With responsible pesticide use, uh, here we go. With responsible pesticide use that is less likely to harm the environment or lead to pest resistance, so certain pesticides are no longer effective. Annual applications are rarely, if ever, needed. Applications need to be based on the history of a, of a pest problem. So they go on to say here that many pesticides, especially newer insecticide chemistry, work best when applied as preventatives. This has led to an increase in unnecessary applications of pesticides that can lead to pest resistance and harm <laughs> non-targets like pollinators. Okay. So okay. Uh, a few a few <laughs> things here I, I just want to offer up is this is this is cool season country for the vast majority of it. There is some warm season that you'll find in Virginia, and, uh, you know, mm-hmm. it works. But the uh, the point here is this, is that I think from an extension standpoint, they're offering sort of the bare minimum. What I would be cautious and, and curious of is, you know, that, uh, that uh, you know, somebody's, lawn, as a lawn care operator, their customer reads this and says, geez, like, do I really need to pay for everything that I'm getting? Like, this, this has got me worried and nervous. So... Extension is interesting. You know, we had this conversation with Dr. Shaddix on our most recent uh, Thirsty Thursday episode, which I'd highly encourage you to go watch. It's a fantastic episode. I thought very uh, insightful from him uh, on the part of academia and where extension plays. And more specifically here is that they're trying to thread the needle between you've got the commerce side of things, right, where lawn care operators, right, are trying to operate and make a profit and do, you know, perform a service for customers. And on the other side of it, you have DIYers that just need, like, uh, this right 500 words in the local paper to kind of get me going in the right direction and i'll go with that and be fine right so i kind of disagree with a little bit of the you know the uh recommendations here i think you could probably go a tad bit higher although you know two uh applications on an older lawn if you really don't care uh and you just want to get something down that's fine but the one that that bugged me a little bit was the newer chemistry specifically talking about insecticides right and how mm-hmm. those can lead to over-application and potentially harm pollinators. I don't think that's the case at all. I think the diamides have proven very safe. Do you know anything 
other than am, am I speaking out of turn here and saying that the diamide? Uh, so again, Petrino, if you're spraying a celeprin, if you're spreading, you know, chlorantranilopril. Is there yeah, you know, Rubex? Same. Is there any any evidence to suggest that in in situ that these are dangerous for pollinators no, or more dangerous no, in fact, than what neonics are? In fact, these, I would say, I would posit the position that a even the neonicotinoids are not exactly the devil because Ryan. I still remember the day that I had to do a curative treatment for billbug on a zoysia lot. That was not a good day because here's my instructions to the, uh, to, to the owner of that house. You keep your dogs, your children, and yourself off of this lawn for at least 24 hours. And... I proceeded to apply something to that lawn that w that's now banned. I don't have to do those kind of things with the latest generation of preventative insecticides that pose minimal risk to human and animal health. And even now, uh, by Reading between the lines of what this extension person is saying, this person is essentially saying that instead of applying a safe, effective, and proven preventative, somebody should wait until they have something like grubs or fall armyworm or sod webworm and then treat that reactively. And that, to me, is just bad policy. You know, as a lawn care operator and even as a home, as a consumer or a homeowner, because, you know, Ryan, every time I see somebody opening up that bag of Dilox granule, I'm getting a little nervous. Okay, I'm getting just a little nervous because Dilox is the last of that generation of organophosphate and carbamate pesticides that are now mostly banned. Dilox yeah. is the last of that. <laughs> well, depending on who you ask, they, they love using Dilox too. So the point being here, folks, is that, you know, uh, the extension, uh, I think it's important to get to know your extension folks, whether you're a lawn care person, um, a, um, you know, a homeowner, anything like that. There are lo typically there are local extension people, right, in your county, your city, uh, your region of the state, what have you, right? And then within that whole structure, right, there is typically at least one, if not multiple, turf grass extension folks. And those are those folks are more often than not, unless you're in a big state like Texas, has a couple that are in Dallas and a couple that are down at College Station at TAMU. Uh, I know that's one state that's like that, but generally speaking, they're going to be at your land-grant university, and those would be great folks to get to know. So I highly encourage you to do that. This is not a dig on them. It's just a way of pointing out that uh, we can be more specific and, and, and be more helpful uh, the, the deeper we dig. So with that, Ray, it's now time for Jono's Turf. <laughs> Jono's Turf! 
I'm Joe. I'm gonna give you a bunch of accurate turf facts today. Because Joe knows turf. <laughs> Joe most certainly does know turf. And uh, tonight we want to talk a little bit first. Uh, before we get to the, uh, the real vid, uh, we want to go ahead and drop some knowledge here first from Joe's new partner in crime. And I, I'm serious. I'm, I'm promoting this. I'm not blowing any smoke here at all. So please, let's watch this clip real quick on Joe's turf because there's a good point that gets brought up here, and I want to make sure that we highlight it. Urgent, just right. When the soil temperatures are starting to creep up to that 50, 55 degree mark. But there's one area of your lawn that heats up a little bit faster than say the interior areas, the center part of your lawn. And that area of your lawn that heats up faster is along your concrete surfaces. Maybe it's your patio, your driveway, your sidewalks. Because in the springtime, as temperatures start to go up, we start getting more sunlight and the days start getting longer. Those harder concrete or asphalt, blacktop, whatever you've got, surfaces, maybe a paver patio, those start collecting heat a lot faster. And that heat kind of radiates out into those areas closer to them. So where you may, if you are a soil temperature person, where you may take your soil temps more in the middle part of your lawn, might be a good idea to take those temperatures closer to your concrete surfaces because you may get your pre-emergent down when you thought was on time, but those areas along those sidewalks and driveways heat up a lot faster. So you might start seeing some weeds pop up there first. Let's All right, perfect. Hey, listen, A-plus effort for Travis in putting out science, and I swear to God, I am being completely genuine and honest. This is a great message here from him of using science because it's true that um, – the edges, right? We're going to see more pressure in those spots. Yes. Soil temperature and everything like that. And you're dealing with, you know, uh, pre-emergent timing, which is going to become a big deal here. And everybody gets real nervous about it. And I think even in that video, Travis talks about, you know, kind of, hey, listen, you're going to have some weeds. And I, I, I will say this, Ray. I know in your, in your lawns, you know, in, in some of my uh, turf, there's areas that you can't have weeds, but in general terms, right? I can accept a few weeds. I can deal with it, you know, and it's not that big of a mm -hmm. deal. So I'm glad, though, that Travis pointed that out and used science as a backing, right, of using soil temperatures, where to take them, talking about solar radiance against paved surfaces and pervious surfaces, right, and how those areas might heat up just a little bit faster and we might see weeds and more pressure there. So kudos to him. And while we're doing this here, Let's go ahead, throw that up there, Jay Pink. I want to make sure that we tag this in here. So, uh, Joe, our sponsor, has a has a new partner in crime. They've got a podcast. Listen, here's what I'll say is, if you like us, I don't know that you'll like them. And if you don't like us, then I think you will like them. And that's fine. Like, I want to give people, this is America. There's free speech. I want to have everybody have an opportunity to hear what they want to hear. So, if you hate our guts, there is now an alternative, right? There is an alternative and... <laughs> I think it's great. I swear to God, I think it's great. These guys, they're getting on there. I think it's Tuesday nights. Uh, you're gonna, this isn't going to drop on YouTube till Wednesday, but in the future, Tuesday nights, uh, they start about 9 o'clock Eastern. Hop on there, check them out, especially if you hate us. If you've made it this far into the show and you're still seething, gritting your teeth, waiting for us to say something 
uh, that's going to make you hate us even more, just stop watching. Please just don't watch anymore <laughs> and go watch these guys. So check them out. And also, while we're there, we also want to uh, update here uh, and, and talk about WeCareLongCare.info real quick. Jay Pink, if you want to throw that up, we've got 9230 in the kitty, our uh, process of, of uh, getting corporate donations in. I think that'll be reflected in the next month. Uh, or, or when the month closes out here at the end of uh, February. So we'll get that updated right now with those corporate donations. It's about $10,500. What we are really excited about is we've got some content creators lined up to put out videos uh, in March and April and May. Right now, other content creators in the YouTube lawn care space that will be uh, throwing that link up and asking for small, whatever folks can give. Uh, it's a great cause. It's the Travis Feltner Fund uh, for, uh, brought to you by the Grass Factor at St. Jude, and we couldn't be more proud to partner with all those guys and make it happen. So please check it out. And uh, remember, if you hate our guts, there's an alternative now. Go check them out. No no smoke, no BS. Go get it. I love you guys. All right. Now, here's something. This is funny, too, is that uh, I think what I'm going to show you, Ray, even the guys that are alternative that don't like us, uh, or I'm not sure if they don't like us personally. I don't know. But regardless, we all can share in our disdain or this next person, their practices, what they're all about, and what this MFR is about to do. So, Jay Pink, let's roll tonight's Joe Knows Turf. Oh, there he is. Look at this guy. On there. Pause. Back so we up. got a lot. Can, can you go back to that? Can we go back to the, the clip art real quick? Or the, 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 I'm sorry, the thumbnail? I don't know if that's even possible at this point. But it's important because I want to make one really important uh, notation here. That I think, I think he just stole the uh clip art here of the gentleman you know, the referee putting the red card up i'm pretty sure that came from his soccer coaching video editing library so uh it's still out there if you want to doc will teach you how to coach uh soccer too so you know check that out if you want to but yeah good reuse of the of the content library bro all right let's roll this and see what he's freaking out about on there so we got a lot going on um, I'm just going to show you real quick. I'll show you how crazy it was. It's some stupid video of me spraying. So here we go. Oh, man. I am sweating my butt off. And what do I mean by an emergency, pre-emergent treatment? Look how ugly this looks. See all the poana coming up back over here. Now, the putting green looks good. Then look over here. I want you to look at this. Look at all this poana up along the house over here. Now, you can see the green dye that I'm using. So I have got a ton of Poana, and the whole purpose of this video was to show you guys how to kill it off and how to put down your pre-emergent. So I am Pause. putting down. Look, okay, look over his left shoulder, and I'm not going to be judgmental. I'm just going to say, and I don't know how, uh, Ray, real quick, before we get to the meat and potatoes of this, in a lawn, let's just say that you were transported magically uh, to the state of Georgia, and that's where you live, right? We, when, when you come mm -hmm. over here in October... You come over in October, you don't get to go back. You have a <laughs> Bermuda grass lawn in the state of Georgia. What would be your pre-emergent strategy starting in the fall, September, October? Uh, and what would that look like? And then uh, we'll get to there in a second. Go, we'll start with that. Real okay. Quick. Okay. What my fall pre would look like would be spectacle split year one. And then... Year two would be prodiamine, simazine, and monument, or else I would, as an alternate, 
use that combination product called Coastal, which is prodiamine, imazequin, and simazine. You see, there is literally no good reason to have a lot of poor annual breakthrough in a Bermuda or Zoysia lawn unless somebody is doing a very ineffective pre-emergent program. And by the way, Ryan, I'm going to yes. bang on this one particular pre-emergent that I know is very popular in the lawn care world because it does not have the longevity to control poor as a fall pre-emergent, and that is dithelopier or dimension. Please don't use that as your fall pre for poor. It doesn't last okay. long enough. There you go. Okay. <laughs> so here's my question is, as we go back to the video, uh, mm -hmm. w what would you attribute? And again, I, I, me being a neophyte on home lawn Bermuda, right? I only see it on sports fields here in the very mm -hmm. upper part of the transition zone. So help educate me. What would cause all this uh, POA right back here over his, his right shoulder, um, back there up against the house and the flower beds and everything like that? That's just improper application. Is that you know traffic that, from dogs and no, that, stuff like that? No, that's just a poor application. And you know, there's literally no good reason for this because you know, as a commercial applicator, you get judged and you get judged hard when you leave substantial and obvious areas of areas untreated that the weeds break through, you get asked, why do I have weeds here but not here? What happened? I mean, this is just, uh, yeah, this is just, like I said, it's just a junk or a poor application. And of course, I, can't, I could understand, for example, Somebody not wanting to get one of their pre-emergence into the into the planter areas. However, Ryan, mm -hmm. yep, both prodiamine, spectacle, and even therapier, they all have labeling for at direct application into planter areas. There is no prohibition against applying those Time's up, around and, and under trees and shrubs. You can do it. Fair so enough. I'm so I'm just. I'm just thinking that this uh, is just a, a chunk application. <laughs> well, and so that's you know, what I'm saying is like, I'm, I'm, I'm honestly, I'm surprised at how much is in here. And again, it's not to dig on it. It's just, to, you know, uh, I think that a lot of it comes down to, you know, the quality of your application. I mean, whether it might pay a factor, there's some other things outside of just application and things like that that may affect it, but I don't know. All right, let's play this and let's watch. I just wanted to understand perspective of how, you know, what the state of the lawn is and what we're trying to surmise here as we play you know, CSI, Joe Knows Turf's mm -hmm. vision. All, All right, let's see what goes on here. here. Now you can see the green dye that I'm using. So I have got a ton of Poana, and the whole purpose of this video was to show you guys how to kill it off and how to put down your pre-emergent. So I am putting down, I am breaking my rule. I am actually going ahead and I'm putting down my liquid pre-emergent and I'm putting down um, certainty, I believe it is, to kill off the Poana. So I don't have a lot of time. I got to get this down before the rain. Basically what I'm doing is I'm taking um, my, um, my tea pitcher. I put, uh, oh gosh, about at least two and a half gallons of water. 
I put in my certainty, which is a granular. Then I put in my dimension, and then I put in a lot of green dye because I want to make sure with my pre-emergent that I'm getting a good even coat. So you can see I've got my spray bottles around and you can see, see that green? I know exactly where I've sprayed and that's kind of the whole purpose of this. So I got to get going. I'm sorry I can't do more for you guys today on this, but um, I got to get this down before this rain comes in. Uh, listen, we've been through this before. We've been through this before and apparently it hasn't sunk in. Now, listen, I get the, the professional, the, the, the get shit done person in me respects the hustle and understanding that. Yeah. Sometimes you got to get stuff mm -hmm. done before rain, but when you're, violating label restrictions and when you're really going against what you know you should be doing here is i don't think this i i don't have the certainty label in front of me i'll look it up while we chat but ray what just again off the cuff what would be your reaction to mixing together certainty and dimension in a tea pitcher and then uh using that into a hose end sprayer to then apply over a turf area with any reasonable degree of accuracy how does that make you feel? Oh, I'm squirming right now, Ryan. I mean, this is just making me cringe. And, okay, for the listeners at home, <laughs> here is how certainty is specified to be applied according to its label. They, the manufacturer wants you to either apply it through a boom sprayer or in small areas. You may use a handheld sprayer with an appropriate nozzle to evenly cover weeds at a spray volume of up to two gallons per thousand square foot. And the other stipulation of this certainty label is you also want a non-ionic surfactant to be included in your spray solution because certainty is a foliarly active sulfonylurea herbicide so it needs to get onto the weeds and then completely cover the weed leaves and then penetrate through those weed leaves and did doc have any mention of adding a surfactant to whatever he mixed up in his tea pitcher <laughs> I don't no, know. Before I bang him on this, before I, I before I really know. go in on him, I I don't know. Then, I think the moral. Go ahead. Go ahead. Because I think that this is another example of an ineffective application that it doesn't work. And <laughs> my only words to Doc are, please stop doing this because by doing this you're actually contributing to weed resistance via less than efficacious applications. Because sulfonylurea herbicide resistance is a big issue with POA. And 
when you make a sloppy application like this, that's just helping the weeds become resistant. Let me just read you real and, oh, quick. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead, Ryan. I was going to read Please the do. hand. This is from the certainty label on handheld sprayers, of which I don't mm-hmm. believe that a hose end would qualify. But no, we'll it's not. Doesn't it. qualify for that, Ryan. <laughs> All right. Backpack sprayers, pump up pressure sprayers, and other similar type of handheld sprayers. Yeah, we're not going to include uh, the hose end. May hose be end, used yeah. to apply this product. Apply to foliage of vegetation to be controlled at a rate of two gallons of spray solution per 1,000 square feet. Spray coverage mm-hmm. should be uniform and complete. Eh, do not spray to the point of runoff. Okay, now here is the most important part, right, from a, a use standpoint. And this isn't so much about uh, pesticide safety, I would say, at least in my view. This is more about efficacy, right? Like, there's no way to apply with a droplet size and a pattern like that to not have it roll off the leaf. The droplet size on this is massive, right, compared to what it would be coming out of an AI or an XR tip. And right, you're right. just, you're, you're kind of pissing in the wind. Like, I almost wanted to tell him, like, you know, just wait and come back and get the POA later. Like, you can absolutely do it. There's no rush, right? And also... Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, with I'm not sure what their weather's like here this coming week, but I'll look real quick. Athens, Georgia weather. Yeah, you know they got some some higher temps there. You know it's going to be upper 70s, touching uh, low 80s on on Thursday. But then, uh, so mm-hmm. you should get some decent activity out of the salphonellaria, don't you think? Yeah, if it's applied correctly and not Correct. to roll off of foliage like this because just guessing off the top of your head what's approximate application volume running through a hose end sprayer per thousand square foot if you had to spitball it right or guess <laughs> i don't know let's say uh i don't know I, I can't even imagine what it would be I, I do you have a number in mind i'm going to say like four to five gallons per thousand I would probably say at least five gallons per thousand square foot. And then, of course, what no mention is made of, again, that makes this even more sketchy is this may have a chance to work if adequate surfactants were present in the tank mix to even get some of it to cling to the weed foliage. Yeah, well, but, you know, but no, when you're when you got when you got a, a sprayer like this putting out that much uh, high fructose porn syrup, you want it to stick to the surface. It's going on, that's for sure. All right, <laughs> that's the end of Jono's turf. We're heading on now to the burns. No, that last one i i don't know it seems like anymore that last one's just a little bit louder like you know you just yeah i don't know okay so let's go ahead and dive in here uh the birds so uh minnesota getting ready to have a big snowstorm up there from what i understand and they're also getting ready to have lawmakers push a ban on gas-powered lawnmowers chainsaws to curb quote-unquote climate pollution All right, so two Minnesota Democratic lawmakers are proposing a pair of bills that would significantly impact the state's backyards and neighborhood ice rinks in an effort to combat climate change. 
State Reps Jerry Newsom and Heather Edelson, members members of the Minnesota Democratic Farmer Labor Party, introduced legislation on Monday that would block the sale of common landscaping appliances like mowers and chainsaws, as well as ice resurfacing machines such as Zambonis, requiring that only electric battery versions be sold in the state starting January 1, 2025. The ban on lawn garden equipment would include any machine that uses a spark ignition engine rated at or below 19 kilowatts or 25 gross horsepower. Commonly used landscaping tools like mowers, leaf blowers, hedge clippers, chainsaws, lawn edgers, string trimmers, and brush cutters would all be prohibited by that definition. The measure follows Democrats-backed clean energy bill signed into law by Governor Tim Walz that requires electricity production of 80% carbon-free by 2030, 100% by 2040. Republicans labor the bill, the blackout bill. Uh, basically there, you know, there's some comments here that unchecked climate pollution threatens Minnesota's future. Now is the time to take bold action to ensure Minnesotans have healthy climate and clean energy of the future they deserve. Uh, some other cities have been pushing for bans such as New York city, Los Angeles, Seattle's and others. Uh, I said Seattle's as in there's more than one. There may be, but I'm only talking about the one in Washington state while 56% of Democratic voters, blah, 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 blah. We don't really care about that. So anyway, they talked about the California ban. So, I, you know, I think it's interesting that uh, this movement now makes it to middle America, right, to the Midwest. Um, and this is a place that's really resistant to change. I don't know how much, you know, uh, I can't speak for Minnesota. I've, I've spent a little bit of time there, but not much, right? Know some people from there. But I'd be interested to see how this kind of works its way through. Um, the legislature and and moreover is uh you know there is a lot a lot to unpack there in terms of how that uh, manifests itself both in in real terms right because obviously you're going to have uh folks that can go across the border you know for example uh it's not too far from the twin cities to go into like north dakota for example and if it's legal to buy a uh less than 25 horsepower gas powered lawnmower weed weed trim or whatever right are people going to be able to do that and just bring it back across state lines i mean i don't know but ray any strong reaction here in in regards to uh the the birthplace uh of ryan nor uh trying to ban gas-powered lawn equipment do they even know who the guy is no they don't know who it is and you know this is just another utopian knee-jerk reaction because I have to ask now, how much does a consumer mowing for a couple hours every Saturday have to do with climate change versus some factory or factories in completely on the other side of the world where when those factories are in operation, you cannot even see a hand in front of your face because the skies are so full of smoke. I mean, I, I, I just have this certain idea that the people that propose these things are extremely disconnected from realities because, you know, Ryan, I would not go mm-hmm. after, you know, somebody mowing their lawn or, or trimming their shrubs. I would go after 
those places on the other side of the world where when their factories and whatever are in operation, the entire sky is literally black. Right. It's black. <laughs> well, I mean, so I, I'm just is... not. I'm not, right. I'm just not seeing how something like this even is tangible and meaningful. I mean, I think this is an example of it feels good, but it doesn't actually make a difference. There you go. I, I think it will make a difference in some, not in parts, right? That, you know, to, to affect this change, like they're, they're just, again, I think there has to be a lot more uh, development within the industry, right? From an equipment side of things uh, and from, mm -hmm. uh, you know, an electrification standpoint for companies to be able to bring this out. Now, that's no excuse, right? That, hey, you know, that we shouldn't do it because companies aren't ready for it or anything like that from a, uh, from a business side of things. I think we should support them and help them to get ready. But how can we help them get ready if the technology is still emerging, right, to be at scale? And somebody's going to probably come on this video and say, well, Ryan, like, there's coal companies. I'm sure there are, right? But to convert every lawn care company or every home, right, in the state over and do it, you know, at, at, at scale and pretty quickly, uh, that's a little scary. So we'll see what happens. Uh, I sound like a, probably like a, a giant pussy or whatever, but I'm not. I just think that they need to get this figured out for, oops, sorry. Uh, we need to get this stuff figured out first before, uh, pushing it. That's, that's my only thing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, that, that's my whole, that's my whole point is that, and also, Okay, anytime I hear about replacing you know, fuel-powered equipment or fuel-powered vehicles, you know what my question always is, Ryan? Yes, sir. By what means are we going to get the electricity needed? And by what means and what impacts do we have on the environment overall to mine for the rare elements that are present in these batteries and motors? Okay, I mean, because it seems like we're not thinking, you know, there's like a tunnel vision where everybody is looking at that gas engine mower or that gas-powered car, but they are not thinking, for example, guess where the rare elements for an electric motor comes from? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay? And, uh, and, okay, and my other, my, my other question places. is, and right. my other question is, is that once you have this electrically-powered device, assembled and you know in your garage when you plug that thing into the wall ryan where does that electricity come from okay where does that come from mm -hmm. i mean because I, I i have this sense that everybody that pushes for electrical things is doing so under this presumption that the electricity fairy, you know, is at work every time they plug something into the wall. 
<laughs> well, I think I think they're the what they outlined in the article there from an energy policy standpoint that you know by 2030 they want to be at 80 percent and by 2040 if I, I can't remember if those were the dates or if it was 10 years further on but in, in any regard I do think they're looking out for that I wish that there would be some incentive uh, from you know the government or from you know obviously industry is is working very hard try and come up with this stuff they see the writing on the wall they understand you know where things are going i mean for example we talked i think it was an article that we talked about back in the fall where honda mm-hmm. right is getting out mm-hmm. of the lawnmower business and i think part of that at the time that we speculated was that they really didn't want to pivot into the battery stuff they were just like you know what there's going to be enough good companies that do it we'd rather spend those resources other place we're not going to spin it off we're just going to shut it down and say have a nice life we're just going to have a nice life and then okay and in speaking to everything being electric okay i'm not actually opposed to electric things however i am forever mindful of where that electricity comes from i'm always mindful of that and call me crazy but to me, in my mind, the only viable option for completely electrifying the United States is we are going to have to get over our aversion to nuclear power. Oh boy, here he goes. No, we're going to have to get over that because. The United States is, you know, is basically shutting down reactors, whereas I know in Japan and I think even in France, they are going the other way and keeping their plants open because, hey, the electricity ferry does not supply electricity when somebody plugs their car in or plugs in their appliance you know the electricity ferry is not supplying that ryan the electricity has to come from somewhere (laughs) got some we got some uh late breaking news here i'm getting a note here from uh our good friend evie who says that in 2021 Mm -hmm. renewables accounted for 29 percent coal 26 percent nuclear 24 percent Natural gas, twenty-one percent for Minnesota energy electricity. I should say production. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. look, I think the the thing at scale is that again we've got to figure out how we get better at this. And I don't know. I I, I see. Uh, I, I saw for the first time uh, here. Uh, oh gosh, it was probably a month or two ago. I saw two mm-hmm. different ones within like a week of each other but all electric lawn care services, right? That that's how they're being, you know, uh, marketed and advertised to folks is that, you know, they're one, the one was about, you know, sort of, uh, you know, stealth ninja kind of stuff. Like you'll never even know you'll there, we're there. You'll never hear us. And the other one was very much like pushing, you know, uh, alternative energy and not using gas and, and that, that angle of it. And so (laughs) I'll be anxious to see, how those do i think 
you know, the, the areas that they're targeting are definitely more affluent and uh, well-to-do type places, right? That'll be a little bit more, you know, cognizant and mindful of that. And, uh, yeah, if you have, uh, gas powered equipment, it's going to, it's going to be like, uh, I wouldn't say a black market, but you know, I'm sure the value will continue to go up as things age and all that kind of stuff. And so we'll see what happens with, we'll see a lot of repowered engines, uh, probably going in mower frames that, uh, still still uh check the box i guess so we'll see what happens there all right there's going to be oh go ahead go ahead (laughs) there's gonna no there definitely is gonna be a market that's why you need to come over to the states and just open up uh raise uh i don't know repower shop yeah yeah raise repower raise repower because by the way i'm a debt at putting engines on equipment that uh, didn't originally come with those engines. I do that too. There you go. Ray, it's going to be, <laughs> it's going to be right off the, the freeway. Some there in the Tennessee, Georgia area, it's going to be uh Ray's unfucked and overpowered uh, mower shop. Right there. <laughs> I can't wait to see it, see it in lights flashing. <laughs> okay so let's jump into our second and last burn here before we move on uh and this comes to us from the washington post the nfl wanted a lush super bowl field it ended up with an ice rink so this article is talking here about uh, obvious you know uh, what happened last sunday with the super bowl field and they go into some detail here about uh yankee woo who is uh the breeder at oklahoma state the, the individual who bred this grass uh, he's a great man. I've talked to him a couple of times. Um, you know, I used Tahoma's 31 extensively, so uh, I've had some some conversations with him. He's always been very cordial and, and helpful. Um, you know, so the gist of this article, they kind of talk, and they they talk to a gentleman, uh, Dr. Grady Miller from North Carolina State, who you know sort of theorizes that they wanted to have. Uh, a pretty field as opposed to a playable field. And I don't necessarily agree with that. I think there's some interesting things in here about, you know, some of the the steps that they took and everything that they did. I've talked at length about this and I don't want to go into too much detail more than what I already have, Ray, other than to say that, um, you know, I think that one, um, that the, the folks that were taking care of the field were not put in the best possible situation to, to do it and execute. Nope. There's obviously a lot, that is going on the week of, right? And uh, mm-hmm. as more stuff has come out here over the week about, you know, the the uh, limitations that they had in order to do everything that they needed to do, uh, I would put that not on them, but uh, situations out of their control. Number two, um, I made some statements uh, earlier this week uh, about, um, you know, the way that people were treating, you know, the grounds crew and everything like that. And I was criticized of saying, well, you know, the, uh, you, you can't, you know, tell people to back off of them. They're pros, blah, 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 blah. And I, you know what? I agree with that to a certain extent that we all, nobody's above the tongue lashing, anything like that. However, go ahead. Ryan, go you, ahead. Know, you know what? I agree with you there because in this situation, I'm well aware of instances where, you know, the grounds people, they are doing things that if up to them, because they know the ramifications and consequences of doing those things. You know, I'll leave it at that. 
yeah, I think it's uh, it's definitely something that, uh, yeah, those folks, I, I I feel for them. So, long story short, I just want to say this and and sort of wrap up this whole uh, chapter episode this week. It's been very interesting uh, hearing and learning from so many people that were close to it, that were from far away from it, and seeing what they were saying. Uh, my intention was to stick up for uh, the industry that I belong to, which is, you know, sports field managers, folks that take care of this stuff every single day. And the reason I said to not be critical of them is because not only did they give their best effort to do so and, uh, you know, they did not, it did not work out right. It wasn't, uh, I'm going to say that, uh, you know, they did everything that they could. I think I've not heard anything to the contrary. I think that, situation the circumstances of that whole week and the way that things you know play out with everything else that's going on make it difficult and so uh i know the reason that i say this is that you know why can't you make fun of them because i know that they will try to do better the folks that you know were allegedly ripping on and everything like that week in and week out or or whatever this narrative is uh that i've i've heard um from other people not in the sports field world but in other places right that uh the difference between professionals and amateurs is that, you know, professionals will try and do better every single time. I can't always say the same for amateurs, but, um, you know, the folks that we deal with and the folks that are on our channel always try to do better. So I appreciate that about them. And I appreciate that about the Super Bowl crew and everything that they've done. They've got another opportunity to redeem themselves next year in Las Vegas, same type of system, same type of setup. And I will say with, uh, with full confidence, right. That they will get it right. I think with an opportunity to do it over there, chomping at the bit, I have full faith in them, and uh, I love this industry. I love those guys, and they're going to knock it out of the park. With that, let's jump over and check out this week's return. Come back. Ray, what if I told you that uh, high soil carbon sequestration rates persist for several decades in turf grass systems. Now, the reason I say that is uh, one of the things that um, came out of our episode on uh, Thursday, Thursday, which would have been last week with Dr. Travis Shaddix, was that uh, we, you know, in the last month or so behind the scenes, have really taken akin to uh, trying to uh, reach out to and attract. Uh, more academics onto our shows, both uh, Burn and Return and Thirsty Thursday. And the reason being is that we feel like there is a ton of good research that's taking place out there. However, it's hard for those folks to disseminate um, that into a way that most folks would want to, one, uh, take in, two, absorb, and three, most importantly, put into practice, right? So this isn't one that necessarily needs to be put into practice per se, right? Uh, it's more of a meta-analysis, right, where you know, we hear all the time that, uh, you know, about the, the, the things that turf can't do, right? And too often we right. don't hear uh, enough about the benefits of what it can do. And one of those things, Ray, is carbon sequestration, right? So, uh, you know, essentially here what the folks are saying is that, uh, you know, a lawn begins its journey, right? And starts off and then as it ages, right, they've, they've kind of looked at this. Um, and so here's what I'll kind of read from the... Uh, from the abstract, and we'll have a link to this in the show notes. It's a pretty good little read. It's not too deep uh, in any way. So um, we show that fitting soil carbon to the time series of mechanicalistically derived function rather than a purely empirical function 
did not alter these conclusions, nor did employing equivalent soil mass versus fixed depth carbon stock accounting, right? So what they're saying here, Ray, is that the manners in which that all these papers, which this meta-analysis was taken from, right, that they've looked at the carbon sequestration rate where it's been sort of all over the map and they've kind of pegged this, right, into where they, they feel like it's much higher, not, I shouldn't say much higher, but higher than it has been previously reported uh, as a, a matter of fact, right? And so in doing so, they're seeing this not only as empirical evidence that's within the data, right, but they're also, also seeing this as it matures over time, the differences, right, and how carbon manifests itself in a system. So, JPink, throw that uh, infographic up that they put out with the paper. And I thought this was interesting. So, Ray, essentially what they're saying is, is that the 63 studies that they looked at, the carbon sequestration rates were initially very high, but by the time you get to year 50, they're darn near zero. Okay, so basically the carbon gets used up within that system by about 50 years. Now, the other thing, too, that they take into account is that the uh, initial carbon sequestration that takes place within uh, a, a turf grass system, about 32% of that's offset by mowing, fertilizing, or mowing practices, fertilizer applications. And I don't know that they take into account pesticides and things like that as well. So all that being said, I think the, the, the purpose of this paper, one, is to examine some of the ways, right, that they can better study uh, carbon sequestration in turf not only from a measurement standpoint, but best practices to preserve it, right? So they talk a lot in this paper about, um, you know, when we have a site that is, um, you know, going to be used as turf grass for the purposes of carbon sequestration, but then maybe it might get developed in later, you know, later years, 10, 20 years down the line, right? How do we preserve uh, as much of that sequestered carbon as possible within that soil at that time that it gets moved or disturbed or something like that, right? And then the other thing that they basically say and, and surmise in this paper, too, is that in virtually every scenario, other than the only way that you don't sequester more carbon in a situation with turf grass is if you're converting it from a forest to a turf area. That's the only way, right? So I think this proves, right, across 63 studies, a pretty good uh, ample body of evidence, right, for this meta-analysis that, you know, turf grass does an excellent job. Uh, at least for, you know, four to five decades of sequestering carbon. So I think this goes back into, Ray, you know, we talk about, you know, um, you know, cover crops and things like that. Is turf just like a five-decade cover crop, right? Do we need to be thinking about, how you know, the best practices long, long-term of, I think of how so. to, to use this in, in larger areas, right, to not only, you know, be a beautiful surface or the, uh, you know, erosion control and all the other benefits of turf, right? Cooling, things like that. But do we need to think long-term about how we uh, harvest and sequester our carbon and then turn that soil over and start over anew? I, I think we really uh, do because uh, I'm aware of how, you know, when turf grass is creating its organic matter in the soil, Ryan, that is carbon sequestration in real time. When a plant generates biomass, that is carbon sequestration. What happens to that biomass, on the other hand, can go one of two ways. If you take that 
biomass to the landfill, then I can see where that's a, a net negative. You're actually adding to what I always describe as the total carbon footprint of that area. But if we're talking about a turf grass area that's managed according to best management practices and to the eye of minimizing inputs, then I can see how a turf grass area would actually become a attribute rather than a detriment to carbon sequestration. So I think, well, and that's that's the whole point, right? Is that we've we've got to figure out, uh, you know, take this and not just be like, hey, look, it sequesters carbon. How cool is that? I think the next step in this is trying to understand this again in a longer time holistic series, manner. Not what they talked about yeah. a holistic yes. manner and what opportunities are out there, whether it be whole lawns, institutional right of way turf. Like there's so much turf out there that people don't even think exists, but also could be, you know, massive carbon sinks. I mean, shit, just think about like the, you know, the median on the highway or something like that. Right. Yes, the I roadside, mean, the roadside vegetation. Yes. Yes. Tons of area, and, right, that we can do this in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Ryan, does this yes. kind of uh, <laughs> validate what you've, uh, you know, seen and know about regarding turf grass? Yeah, I think so. I think we, we always say this, right, and we talk about it, mm -hmm. but there's been so many disparate studies over the years proving it in different ways at different levels, right? And I think it really does show the importance of time, right? as a mm -hmm. as a, a real true variable that we're controlling for and understanding how it starts and what the trend line looks like, how long that takes. And then obviously now that we know that there's sort of a finishing point, right? Like I said, uh, a, a cover crop in agriculture is there, you know, for specific reasons. And one of those, you know, obviously besides, uh, you know, erosion control, you could say that this is again, a, a four decade study in, you know, regenerative, soil farming and shit like that you know for carbon sequestration specifically using turf grass right so i think there's ways that we need to manifest this in uh in in practice right and start somewhere of looking at okay hey it's probably not going to be amenity turf right although i think amenity turf would be important because of how often we renovate right and how often we change things you know so whether it be golf courses sports fields you know certain lawn areas things like that but that's uh, overall, I think, a very small portion of what's out there, right, in terms of the utility turf, the right-of-ways, institutional turf, things of that nature. Those are the real opportunities, right, to swing big. But start small, right, prove the point, and then let's scale up mm -hmm. and go from there. So we shall see yeah. what happens. Now, all that being said, there's uh, something else that we need to be aware of. And as soon as I pull up, the notion again i will be able to tell you what that is and it's over at michigan state if you're uh if you're a spartan if you're in the big 10 i mean i, I guess i gotta root for the big 10 <laughs> in this case but uh, okay so the spartans will have a chance to leave their mark on the 2026 fifa world cup after the msu board of trustees unanimously voted friday to build a fifa funded turf grass testing facility that would make turf from more than a dozen stadiums in the world's most popular sporting event. Their approval assures agreements for the construction and financing of the turf grass testing facility and the acceptance of the facility as a gift once construction is complete 
and once the work to make the playing surfaces for the world's most watched sporting event is done. FIFA will fund and build the turfgrass testing facility on MSU's East Lansing campus in an agricultural district. The building will be available to MSU researchers and students to be used at the end of the FIFA project. Quote, we're excited about the work that's going to be happening here. Excited for our faculty to be able to engage in this cutting-edge research with so many within the turfgrass space, said Kelly Millenbaugh, dean of MSU College of Agriculture and Natural Resources. MSU and University of Tennessee will be developing and providing the natural grass playing services for 16 North American stadiums and practice facilities as part of the 2026 World Cup. The work involves developing a turf grass system that can be used in both domed and outdoor stadiums while also making the grass playable for up to 60 days after it is installed. MSU's renowned turf grass program of over seven decades has boasted research programs involving golf courses, athletic fields, and even home lawns from construction to management of the turf grass. Students have participated in the program, have worked on projects, including the installation of temporary grass surfaces in the former Pontiac Silverdome for the 1994 World Cup. The World Cup returns to North America, the United States, Canada, and Mexico in 2026 and will be the largest sporting event ever held, Bowman said in his memo. The number of teams in the final is expanding from 32 to 48, which requires more stadiums and practice facilities. Construction of the turf grass facility is expected to start in April and be mostly Time's complete up, by June over. 2023. It will be over by June 2023, Matt. We got another project, and this will dwarf everyone that we've ever had, said Trey Rogers, professor of turf grass management at the College of Agriculture and Natural Resources. It's going to take a lot of people to support, and we've already had a tremendous amount of support from the university already. I think we'll make everyone here very proud. So, Ray, Opportunity Knox up there in... Uh, East Lansing, so they're going to have uh, one of two sites in all of North America, uh, along with Matt's Falls, out there uh, creating mm-hmm. these surfaces. It's going to be a huge endeavor. I think probably uh, one of, I dare to say, it's probably the biggest effort in turf grass history in uh, North America. And when I say that, I don't think it's understating it because of not only the interest and the spectacle and the eyeballs that will be on it, but also, as we just watched this past Sunday, how uh, crucial everybody finds it, right, in that nobody notices when it when it's good, but everybody notices it when it's bad, apparently. so uh, And, uh, you know, FIFA? I think oh, FIFA yeah. has, has extremely strict standards regarding... You know, play. You know, not. I, I will. I'll call it playability and uh, you know performance of the surface. Where I know FIFA would probably accept one of my less than flu, you know fluorescent glow in the dark green turf areas, but because it's mowed low and kept tight, they would pass that over something that is see from space green. I mean, that's the sense <laughs> that I get out of them. You know, they're, they're like that. <laughs> yeah, I think there's the, the, the playability component's huge. I think the fact that, again, you've got uh, 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 the difference in uh, climate that you're going to face, right, uh, between mm-hmm. you know, the sites in Mexico and the sites in Canada and everything in between, the fact that there are dome stadiums, uh, it will be in use that's going to be a huge a huge challenge that i think they've already started to try and understand and figure out but the fact that <coughs> excuse me that in those stadiums that you know what they're saying is 
that grass has to be down for a period of 60 days right prior to the first match. That's an incredibly long mm-hmm. time, right, for it to survive inside. Mm-hmm. So uh, the technology that's going to be taking place, it's not just going to be agronomics. It's really going to be a confluence of uh, ingenuity, technology, and and the agronomic piece all coming together. It'll be a sight to behold, Ryan, and we'll see what happens. I, What's up? I have a little question for you. Please. Given their specification of turf grass being installed in place for 60 days yeah uh does that mean then that in these domed stadiums they will have to provide artificial lighting for that grass they will they will and uh the effort the effort to be ready for that has been underway for some time already uh and i can tell you that because uh because i'm just imagining my goodness that would dwarf the grow lights that uh, people growing certain things in their house normally employ. <laughs> <laughs> Just seeing. <laughs> yeah, when that uh, when that when that plane or helicopter with the FLIR uh, flies over one of these stadiums, they're going to be like they're going to have to take off their goggles or something. It's it's going to be bad. Um, <laughs> the power, the, the power bills. I mean, I, all that kind of stuff. I mean, it will be, uh, it'll be a spectacle. And I think that's the thing is that people need to understand. Uh, you'll have them come and come from both ways, right? I'm sure that you're going to have people saying, "Gosh, that's just so much effort and time and everything to put into something that's just so temporary," right? But I also think too mm-hmm. that there's a ton that can come out of it, and that's where I think the science will be interesting. I mean, there is a ton about um you know the light requirements for turf grass and it's something that's hugely undervalued and understood and actually i'm going to work on getting a probably one of the preeminent folks in uh academia on to come talk about light he's one of the smartest guys in turf that i know uh and i will see if we can get him on soon to talk about it but uh you know there are different aspects about you know turf grass growth in the research realm that i think will help pave the way for future advances both in turf grass breeding and growth habit outside of dome stadiums and things like that right um sensor technology and ways to uh utilize and leverage that to grow better turf and anticipate some of these conditions right so there's a lot i think that will come out of this it's not just this effort to hey it's going to be really cool you know uh, to to do this you know come up with these whiz bang gizmos that allow us to grow grass inside it's all the other stuff too that we need to understand be able to measure and then correlate and then again reproduce across many different sites uh in order for this to work right and oh by the way every team that comes in has to have uh i think it's two if i remember correctly at least two training pitches possibly three so not only do you have the 16 stadium sites right for host cities but you also have all the additional training fields that have to be up to the same standard so the undertaking is going to be massive uh i can't wait to see it um don't know if we'll get to participate in it. Don't know if I want to participate in it. I kind of just, you know, this might be one I want to sit back and watch and, uh, and we'll see, but it would be fun, uh, fun to watch and see what happens. But in any regard, uh, Jay pink, are we doing the mailbag tonight or not? What, what's, what's the verdict on that? I, I trust your no. judgment. Skip it. No. Okay. Yeah. No, we got some stuff yes. in the mailbag and there was some, uh, one, uh, w- we would have had to engage with Jesse Bousquet to see if we could even mention parts of it. Um, and then the other thing is, 
the other gentleman, I think there was a there was a mention of uh, weeds and uh, I think genitals, and uh, we're just not there yet to read something like that on air. It's a little too personal, so we'll leave it at that. Uh, Ray, it was absolute pleasure to be here with you this <laughs> evening. I hope that uh, the Bears Likewise. comes back from the uh, from the cleaners here soon. Uh, there's no telling uh, what kind of trouble you can get in because, you know, Sheila, she's a good girl. I mean, there's no question about it. But, you know, <laughs> if she uh, if she knows that uh, <laughs> uh, I'll say it, if she knows that uh, your dick has the stomach flu, she's going to want to see some of that ball barf. OK, with that, ladies and gentlemen, have a nice night. We'll see you next time. <laughs> Yikes, Ryan. Yikes. <laughs> Man. I had a personal I had a personal goal of working four of those into the episode. <laughs>